In the beginning, when we started selling internationally, it wasn't on purpose. And now we've probably shipped to almost, I don't want to say every country, but a good amount of the countries in the world. We currently have a UK site, but the challenge which we kind of underestimated was it's almost like starting a second business. Our message still resonates with people regardless of where they are. We've had people say, can you make Hispanic characters? And I think what people forget is that there isn't a quote unquote Hispanic character that we could make. So like, how could we do that and still be sensitive to those other countries and those other cultures? Hello, everybody. I'm Kelly Martin, and you're listening to Making It Work, made possible by FedEx. So far this season, we've spoken to the entrepreneurs about everything from managing their schedules to tackling trolls. And for the most part, we've stayed pretty close to home. This time around, we're expanding our horizons and going global. That's right, we're talking about what it takes to market and sell your products overseas. So dig out that globe and dust off your passport as we ask, what do you need to know before selling abroad? And is it worth it in the first place? Asking the questions is Tom Scallon. While doing research before the interviews, I often check if the entrepreneurs ship to where I am, here in Europe. The truth is, they rarely do. And even if they have international shipping across the pond, the options often buried deep in their FAQs with a clear warning about possible import taxes I'd have to pay when the item got here. Of course, presenting a podcast has its perks, which became obvious when Akila from season one sent me some of her Edge Entity cream to stimulate hair growth. To this day, I don't know whether it was just a kind gesture or a strong hint. The point is, even if I wanted to buy some, I couldn't, which highlights the complexities of selling your goods abroad. What about country-specific regulations, taxes, duties? And then there's dealing with customers in a different language and cultural considerations with your marketing. Expanding to new markets has its rewards, but it requires strategy and due diligence. That's unless you're Paul Pallas. Paul is CEO of Swissco, a hardware supplier based out of Philadelphia. Because some of the stuff he sells is really difficult to come by abroad, the demand's always been there. After a little bit of practice and a few mistakes, Swissco now ships to almost every country in the world, with a little help from Google Translate. In the beginning, when we started selling internationally, it wasn't on purpose. Anybody in the world can reach our website. And we started receiving requests from around the world to order from us, but our shopping cart didn't have the ability to ship internationally. So for example, we had a customer from Japan that wanted uh, to order from us, but our website didn't have any other countries other than Canada and the United States in the checkout form. So we looked into it and learned it's not that big of a deal to ship to Japan. So we started adding countries almost every month. And now we probably ship to almost I don't want to say every country, but a good amount of the countries in the world. Why does a guy from Japan need the products that you sell? Is it is it just a case of not being able to get them in Japan? Yeah, you know, honestly, I don't have a good answer to that. I'm not sure why it makes sense for uh, somebody's really far countries to order from us, but they do. Um, so my guess is just that there is a need for these items and there's not suppliers out there. And maybe it's because... The suppliers out there. Maybe one US window company tried to crack the Japanese market in 1973 or something. Yeah, it's definitely possible. And we don't advertise anywhere purposely for these countries. They are finding us. And I think that's good. I don't think we're ready to advertise for international orders yet. Our website's not really capable of 
for example, changing your currency or changing languages. And I think that really limits us for now. I don't mind taking international orders and getting good at handling how to deal with customs, how to deal with the returns, and how to deal with damaged shipments and lost shipments. And we're getting good at that. So we're right now we're moving to a new platform. We're going to move to Magento. And one of our goals is to start a new website that is going to be in Spanish. And this Hispanic website is going to test the waters for us to see how we do in Spanish-speaking countries. And from there, if it's successful, which I'm expecting it to be, we'll move on to other languages. The Spanish will help a lot of your domestic customers as well, I'm guessing. I, I not, Yes, I do believe that. And that's why that's an obvious language to start with. When you're shipping to other countries, how important is it to have your website translated into different languages or have customer support in different languages? I believe it will become important, especially if we start advertising in different languages. But right now, since our website's only in English, it's mostly English-speaking customers around the world finding us. Once in a while, we will use Google Translate to translate a few different email inquiries we get in different languages, and that's been working okay. But for now, you know, due to our website being in only in English, most of our customers speak English. So I do believe it's important to get more business, but for now, just to try it out, it's, it's not, it doesn't need to be a first step. It's funny, before I interview entrepreneurs, I always check out their FAQs to see if they ship to Europe where we are. And they're usually very honest. Mm -hmm. It's a bit of a hassle. There are duties and taxes to be paid, and they're always clear that the customer has to pay those. How do you deal with those struggles? Especially when the customer doesn't realize that could happen, it's a problem. And early on, that was a big problem because, for example, Canada customers in Canada didn't realize there's going to be extra charges on their shipment when they received it. But nowadays, I think a lot of customers are educated when they purchase from other countries that there's a chance that there's going to be extra charges. You know, here's a good example. We uh, messed up an order. We sent someone the wrong items. So we reshipped the order, but didn't understand that we needed to make it obvious to customs that this was a no charge order. And the customer got charged duties and taxes again. And they were pretty upset that there are amend our amended shipment just cost them more money so obviously we refunded them and took care of it but it, it ticked them off so it, it's learning those kind of oddities of international shipping is important and i think that's why it's a good first step just to do a few international shipments around the world just to learn these kind of things it must be a killer when you realize you've sent the wrong order halfway across the world. Oh, I know. It's it, it, it's some of the worst mistakes you can make because those orders are expensive. And it takes sometimes a long time to get those orders back to that customer. So we do have special checks on all our international shipments. We treat our international shipments like next day expedited orders. So they get double checked before they leave. But mistakes do happen every once in a while. And yeah, we try our hardest not to make those mistakes, but they're going to happen. There's a clear advantage to being the guy that sells that specific part for that specific machine, which they happened to stop manufacturing in 1987. You have a captive market, and that's why it makes so much sense for Swissco to ship pretty much everywhere. It almost becomes a public service.
But dealing with international orders as and when they come in is very different from making a concerted effort to enter a new market. And no one knows that better than Ibuno Laloye. Ibuno is the founder of Live Breathe Football, also based out of Philadelphia. When he decided to start selling his soccer apparel outside the US, the UK seemed an obvious option. After all, they, we, speak the same language and are soccer fanatics. The sales would surely come flooding in. Well, turns out it wasn't that easy. For us, where we are with the UK, with expanding into the UK market is we've got the UK website where people in the UK and Europe can order products that'll get shipped directly from the UK. And that was sort of save on shipping time and, um, and cost. But the challenge we underestimated was the marketing, right? It's pretty much like having a completely separate business, not just an extension of the current one. So our challenge right now is to figure out, okay, how do we market specifically to people in the UK, tell the brand story in a way that's going to resonate with people in the UK. And the main thing is also just building up a community of people in the UK that love LBF and kind of like our, our advocates for the brand. Because we do have quite a few customers that are in the UK, but the problem is they're kind of they just, they just discovered LBF through social media, whatever. There's no real sort of presence on the ground that people go, oh, I went to this LBF event or I did this, you know, LBF sponsors this team, this local team or whatever. So those are things that we need to do to kind of really get the brand, you know, popping in the UK. Was there perhaps a bit of naivety there when you launched in the UK? Kind of British people love soccer, so they're a captive market. Yeah, absolutely. It was very, it was very naive and... We did. We just kind of like thought, okay, we have a brand that's established, and if we just expand to the UK, you know, it's going to be great. And we really underestimated the the challenge ahead of really building a successful business in a different part of the world. Because then, you know, I'm not in the UK on a day to day basis. We don't really have anyone doing marketing in the UK, so it's like there's a lot of resources that we needed to commit to making it successful that we just didn't anticipate when we went into it. So what's the plan going forward for the UK market and Europe? The plan right now is to just kind of like take a step back and really come up with a new game plan. Like right now, if we're starting over, we're starting with, with experience and a bit more knowledge. So the plan is to just really like find partners in the UK and Europe that we can kind of really like leverage their position, their access, and maybe even their like expertise to really help us build the brand rather than kind of starting from scratch ourselves. And one way to do that is with partnerships is to find, you know, a partner in the UK or in anywhere in Europe and say, Hey, look, you know, here's our brand. Here's what we do. And we collaborate with them, whether it's on product or whatever, we really just work with them because, you know, we can kind of leverage their position in that market to kind of help us, you know, launch in the market and then grow from there. I saw an Instagram photo of you in London outside the Emirates stadium my guess is that yeah. you were there also setting up your warehouse. You seem pretty keen on doing direct-to-consumer. Direct-to-consumer is, um, is for me, such an important... I, I think I think that's really the future of commerce, right? Like For, for me, I just like the ability to, to tell our story directly to who we were trying to tell it to without an intermediary that could sort of change or tell that story in their own way that may not be congruent with our brand. Why was it so important for you to actually be in Europe and for your products not to come from the US? Right, like Europe is, is a massive market for football. Um, and we thought at the time, okay, this is, you know, England's the home of football. 
to have a warehouse in England would be great. Just kind of operate out there would be great. Um, so at that time it was really important, but now the reality is, you know, even now years later, like people still order from the U S site because we have more products on the U S site, but we still can't get over the shipping times, especially now during coronavirus. Like it takes some customers two, three weeks to get their products. So for me, it's important that we're on the ground there because I want that experience that you would get if, you know, if you live in California and order from LBF, you get your order in two to three days. I want that, that customer in England to have that same experience because they're just as, a, as much a customer of LBF as the guy in California, you know? Um, and for us currently, the only way to do that in a cost-effective way is to have a physical location on the ground where we can ship their orders from. How does that work? How, how is it managed? So we have uh, a couple of people that we work with. So I have a partner in the UK that has the warehouse, has the inventory and manages the site. Okay, so you outsource that whole thing. Yeah, 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 it's outsourced, yep. And you decided on the UK because, well, obviously you speak the language and that's where the majority of your European customers are. Yes. Anything else behind the kind of decision? No, that was mainly, and you know, we already, I had, we already had a relationship with someone in the UK, so the partner we work with, um, we already had a relationship with them and we kind of just talked about it over a few months and it just kind of seemed to make sense at that time to say, hey, let's, um, they did some business here in the States. They were doing a lot of business in Europe. So it made sense to kind of explore what that would be like to launch LBF in the UK. Anything else to add in terms of expanding to new markets? Why should people do it? Why shouldn't people do it? Why you should do it, I think it's obvious. There's, there's a chance to get more customers in, in a new place and really grow your business. Why you shouldn't do it is don't do it if you're not ready. Like don't do it if you don't have the resources to fully commit to doing it to the standard that you're currently doing it here in the States or wherever you're based out of. I think it's important to know that, okay, we have enough resources to commit to this and getting it to where it needs to be or where it deserves to be in a reasonable time and at a reasonable cost. So if you don't have the resources, still think about it or think about how do you get the resources to be able to do it successfully. That would be my advice. You're listening to Making It Work, coming up. Just give me an idea of how you chose the countries that you did, those 15. So <laughs> we were never just domestic because we didn't know to set it up properly. Do you think some entrepreneurs underestimate the challenge of deciding to serve Canada? Yeah, because you know, doing it well t- takes time and patience and lots and lots of data and lots of making mistakes. Oh Canada is the Canadian national anthem. It's also what US entrepreneurs say when they want to enter a new market and realise there's a huge one just north of the border. As in, oh Canada, of course. After all, they speak the same language, mostly, and there's a huge amount of cultural overlap. This is part of the reason why Canada was the first port of call for Casey Kelly, co-founder of Blended Designs a Florida-based outfit that makes and sells backpacks and other items that feature children of colour. Actually, Blended Designs ships to quite a few places, but when they realised how much volume they were doing in Canada, they decided to find a resale partner rather than depending solely on a direct-to-consumer model. Here's Casey telling us why. We are careful with some of the other countries that we choose. We're currently in 15 countries. You know, dealing with the tariffs that some of the countries have on goods coming in, we still have to pay for the shipping here, but then the customer also has to pay a, for, pay a tariff when it lands. So some of that is a headache, and we have been trying to work around how to better manage that. How do we 
work it better for that customer. In Canada, we had a retailer that bought in bulk from us. And then we would turn our customers to them. We would tell them, you know, if they were, if they were Canadian, we're like, yeah, we recommend that you order from this person, then you don't have to pay that international shipping. So I think that's kind of a goal that we want to have within some of the other countries that we do have a lot of volume. So there's a big difference in having local suppliers in different countries and doing direct to consumer in different countries. Yeah, because that international shipping rate is just it's it's insane. And then on top of it, you're still having to pay the tariffs that the company may impose. So we want to make the buying experience as best for the customer and to how do we get to the customer the best way. Okay, back right to the beginning and you have just domestic sales in the US. Just give me an idea of how you chose the countries that you did, those 15. So... <laughs> We were never just domestic because we didn't know to set it up properly. Our website was just open up to everyone. Now, since then, we have restricted certain countries. But what we saw was we did have a lot of people from Canada ordering from us. And I think there's there's like a blend with Canada and the United States. And I don't know if it's just because it's North America. There's so many people that have relatives and family members that live in like Toronto and Montreal that it's almost like it's the same country. You know, it, you don't really notice the difference. And so they were ordering from day one. And one of the people that was ordering has a company called um, Kids Lag. And it's a Canadian company, but she finds different products that are targeting black and brown children. And then she sells them on her website. So she reached out to us and our first year, we absolutely did not want to do it. We wanted to really strengthen our brand first. So we waited until our second year to start working with other people. We wanted to make sure that people knew this was our bag because we had a lot of competitors that were kind of... um, How do you say it? They weren't really counterfeiting us, but they were trying to piggyback off of us quite a bit. The 15 countries, you have local suppliers in 15 countries or you do direct to consumer in 15 countries? We do direct to consumer everywhere. The only place that we have a local supplier is Canada. And even still, because of our volume is so high, we don't necessarily notice when someone orders from Canada until it's time to ship. But if someone reaches out to us before they order, we tell them, we recommend that you order from her to save on shipping. But if they order from us, then we just go ahead and ship it. So you always did direct to consumer as kind of an accident. Right. So even when we ship to the UK, we don't have a supplier over there. We just ship it to them. It's just because social media blends everything. And if people, if they can order, they'll order it. And people from those countries, when they order, they'll get a message saying, thanks for buying this backpack, but you'll need to pay the tariffs yourself. Um, No, they don't. The majority of people are aware of it, that they know because they've ordered from the United States before. So, and it's really, the only one that really hits them hard is the UK. So they will hold the product until the customer pays a certain amount. And we've only had a couple people, you know, reach out to us and, you know, complain about it. They're like, well, I paid this much for shipping. And it's like, yeah, that's how much we charge. We don't, we don't have a markup on shipping. That's one thing that's important. We charge exactly what we pay. Because your product is 
so unique and if people want to buy it i mean they really want to buy it do you feel a little bit of a sense of duty to sell to countries that aren't the us i wouldn't say that i would say that i think our our mission is to empower children and to empower students we always say if we change the image we change the narrative you know in the us there are constant negative images of people of color so if a child is growing up consistently seeing these negative images, then what does that do to their psyche? So how do we change some of the messaging? And that is something that we want just period. It's not unique to the United States. We know that people throughout the world deal with some of the biases that come with being a person of color. So we are open to that. And we we don't want to... We don't want to limit our message. Our message still resonates with people regardless of where they are. One thing that we've had a lot of conversations around is we've had people say, can you make Hispanic characters? Can you make you know other, other different um, nationalities and ethnicities? And I think what people forget is that there isn't a quote unquote Hispanic character that we could make because Mexican is very different than Puerto Rican. It's very different from Brazilian, you know, it's from Argentina. So there's so many different versions and none of them look alike. So it's like, it doesn't really transcend the way black people kind of do. So like, how could we do that and still be sensitive to those other countries and those other cultures? Do you fear that if you don't actively expand to other markets, there'll be a, a company in France, for instance, that has a website in French that will decide to also produce backpacks that better represent people of color and you, you'll lose that market share and lose control over your brand? So there's something that um, Yandy says something and it just resonates so well with me. She always says, I'm not trying to compete with you. I'm trying to eat with you. So I look at that as when my son's best friend goes to a retailer and is looking for a backpack, he has an aisle to choose from. When my son goes, he has mine to choose from. He doesn't have a whole aisle. So how do we create a whole aisle where we expand the options? Our company brand for around our backpacks is 1954 by BD. The reason why we picked 1954 answers that question. 1954, May 17th, 1954 was when the Supreme Court of the United States made it illegal to discriminate against kids going to certain schools. It desegregated schools. It was the first time that Black people were not restricted in their movements. So it opened the doors. So basically, we're trying to desegregate the back to school category. And if that means being the person that can open the door for a company in France to now also have Black kids on backpacks, then that's what we're doing. We're not trying to be exclusive. We're trying to present an opportunity where children have options, options that were never there before. So I think our mindset is a little bit different than what your average entrepreneur is because our mindset is around how does this benefit us as a community and as a culture more so than how does it benefit us as a business. 
It's clear that Casey is keen for blended designs to have a strong social impact, and that mission will affect where the company heads next. Having a unique product can bring a strong demand, and with that comes a temptation to rush into new markets before the enthusiasm subsides. And products don't come much more unique than those sold by Muncie Gungan. Her Massachusetts-based business, Nested Bean, makes weighted swaddles to help babies and their parents get to sleep. Muncie's company has fans all over the world, but she decided to take a very methodical approach to international sales in order to limit risk. Like Casey, she decided to start with Canada. But it wasn't easy, and it took some time to reach profitability. In Canada, initially we were selling it through another entity. And then once again, you know, the same problems occurred where the end customer was a few degrees away from us. And the sales were, again, controlled and limited by what the other entity could do. But the main reason was that the brand itself was not as known in Canada as it may have been in the United States. So because we had the same digital means in Canada to sell and to market our products as we did here in the United States, we decided to go into Canada establishing our own footprint. So we have a website in Canada. We have digital marketing means in Canada, which are, to a good degree, replica of the United States footprint. Do you think some entrepreneurs underestimate the challenge of deciding to serve Canada? Obviously, it seems to make a lot of sense. Most people speak English, cultural similarities, obviously the geography. But it sounds like you put a lot of time and effort into digital marketing before you did it. Yeah, because, you know, doing it well takes time and patience and lots and lots of data and lots of making mistakes. So we we like to make mistakes in a very measured way. Going into Canada came up with its own challenges. Although the language, like you said, you know, is the same, it has its logistics challenges, which are far different than the United States because the country is just populated differently, thinly populated population concentration in certain pockets makes logistics very difficult. And we really had to figure out that problem, not that we tried to solve the logistics problems of Canada, but making our sales strategy work for Canada, our profitability work for Canada. That did not happen overnight. So after Canada, what's next? Australia, Europe, Mexico? A company can have its own biases, but Relying again on data makes a a lot of sense. So we have actually partnered with a consulting division of EY where they have the knowledge and the wherewithals to bring all that information to you. Sometimes getting into a country could have its own regulatory issues. So we are assessing right now what our internationalization strategy should be to minimize the risks of going into a market that you know only from from a certain distance. Right now, that's what we are doing. We're looking at English-speaking countries of a certain GDP, of a certain birth rate, but there are other things that go into that equation. And to expand to other countries, would you consider relinquishing the direct-to-consumer model? Because we've seen such success with that model, we wouldn't be relinquishing that model until we feel the need to. There are limits to every model, but there are such benefits to the direct-to-consumer model that we would always lead with it because that gives us the closest connection with the end customer. And once we have learned from that market, 
we would relinquish the control because now scale is of essence. Tell me about the linguistical challenges you had with Canada. If you're selling in another country, you have to have bilingual or trilingual packaging just for regulatory reasons, but you also have to have that language representation on your website. So that's the step that we would be taking. And how's your French, Mansi? <laughs> you know, I, I, there are people who, who have their French far better than me, so I'm lucky to know them, but uh, my French is, <laughs> French is not so good. <laughs> Coming up next time, an episode you do not want to miss. My mental health has been an all-time low. It's not just from work, it's from living during a pandemic. It's been really tough. So my anxiety was, it was pretty bad. I would run downstairs to where nobody could see me and I would have an anxiety attack, wipe off the tears, and then get back to work as if nothing had happened. When or if you start to lose it, as many of us have, and I've certainly gone down that path myself and been down at the very bottom, is you've got to have the tools to get yourself out of it. That's it for this episode of Making It Work. If you haven't already subscribed to this podcast, what are you waiting for? That way you'll know exactly when the next episode has landed. We love to hear what you think of Making It Work, so don't forget to give us a rating and leave a comment wherever you listen to podcasts. You can also get in touch directly by sending an email to makingitwork at fedex.com. Thanks to our entrepreneurs, Monsi Gongan, Casey Kelly, Paul Palace, and Abun Olaloye. Making It Work is produced by Yolene Margri, written by Tom Scallon, and edited by Lars Blockenberg, with creative direction from Jeroen von Koningshoven. Music by Fresh Big Mouth, who created this song with actual sounds from the FedEx Superhub in Memphis, Tennessee. This show is delivered to you by FedEx and presented by Tom Scallon and me, Kelly Martin. 